1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilobasaid. I'm a host of New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with Serhiy Bilenki about his new book, Laboratory of Modernity, Ukraine Between Empire and Nation, 1772-1914, published in 2023, by McGill Queen's University Press in collaboration with the Canadian Institute for Ukrainian Studies. Serhii Bilenki is a research associate at the Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Alberta. He taught courses on Russian, Ukrainian, and East European histories at the University of Toronto, Columbia University, and Harvard Ukrainian Summer Institute. Serhii Bilenki is the author of the following books. Romantic Nationalism in Eastern Europe, Russian, Polish, and Ukrainian political imaginations, Imperial Urbanism in the Borderlands, Kiev, 1800-1905. Serhiy bilenki um, is also the editor of the Selected Writings of the 19th-century Ukrainian Intellectuals, Fashioning Modern Ukraine, Selected Writings of Mikola Kostomarov, Volodymyr Antonovich, and Mykhailo Drahomanov. He's also director of Harvard Ukrainian Summer Institute. Uh, Hello, Sergei, thank you so much for joining me today, and of course, congratulations on this new publication.
1: Uh, Thank you, Natalia, for inviting me to to speak to you, I'm I'm, I'm very honoured to have this opportunity today.
0: So, uh, I'd like to uh, start with the Actual title of the book. Uh, It covers the time period from 1772 to 1914. And um, at the beginning of the book, uh, you mentioned that it's challenging to write a history of Ukrainian, and you emphasize that you would like to avoid a feel good history. And um, the account you present in the book is highly entangled particularly regarding the relations between Russia and Ukraine and how the Ukrainians were seeing themselves under the Russian Empire. However, there are a lot of interesting cases that you bring, but at times they do read like a feel-good history, although I understand that it was not your intention. So uh, this is not your first book, but your first history of Ukraine. Uh, what was the key question guiding and shaping uh, your book?
1: uh That's a great question. Uh, I will start with feel-good history. Um, I I don't know if that's your impression, or uh, I will will see how many people will have the same impression. Uh, I think I did not... It was not my intention to produce a feel-good history of Ukraine, although perhaps uh, this feeling might come from the comparison of what's come afterwards. I was speaking about the 20th century on all that bloodshed that's... happened and so perhaps the time prior to 1914 seems like a feel-good time and hence feel-good history uh, although definitely the time I covered also contained a lot of tensions a lot of conflicts uh, and it was not at all feel good for many people yeah but that's for, again perhaps the impression uh, when we compare uh, these two different times yes before 1914, and what came afterwards—World War One, World War Two, uh, and 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 many other things that happened in between. Uh, now back to the question: uh, What was my goal uh, when I uh, wrote uh, the book? And to put it simply, my goal was to create to write. Uh, a, a history of Ukraine uh, that, that would describe the experience of Ukraine and its various communities in the age of empires set against two major oppositions, between nation and empire on the one hand, and between tradition and modernity or modernization on the other. And the key question that I actually addressed in the Oriental uh seems perhaps a bit straightforward, but I think it might be the biggest takeaway from a book. And the question uh, sounds uh, the following. What is or can be the central meaning of Ukraine history in the long 19th century? And the answer that I gave uh, in the very end is that during this time period, Ukraine emerged from the laboratory of modernity as a timely alternative to the time-worn empires. So Ukraine being the kind of the most obvious alternative to the empire, particularly the Russian Empire. And the the, the, the incompatibility, incompatibility between Ukraine and Russia uh, is very much evident today, uh, in front of our eyes. Yes, uh, because we clearly see that as long as Ukraine remains democratic and Russia autocratic and imperial they cannot coexist peacefully. As they, they coexisted for a while peacefully in the 1990s when Ukraine was not that democratic and Russia was not yet autocratic, but obviously with uh, Putin coming to, 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 to power, this equilibrium changed. And unfortunately, we see that Ukraine and Russia are simply incompatible. And that has historical roots to this incompatibility. And uh, partially My book is an answer to this uh, question or big, big dilemma. Uh, Ukraine indeed showcased during this long Latin century uh, how empires could be dismantled, Uh, Ukraine being almost the perfect grave digger of empires, and particularly when we're talking about the Russian Empire, because the uh, experience of Ukraine and Ukrainians in Austria under Vienna was different and we might talk about it separately. But Ukraine being Ukraine is a kind of strange case because on the one hand, Ukraine indeed uh, was the empire grave digger, it dismantled, destroyed the Russian empire. On the other hand, a lot of the Ukrainians, what they were called Ukrainians, or little Russians, South Russians, were uh, empire builders. Yes, and, and that's what Basically, made the Ukrainian case uh, prior to 1914 different from all other ethnic peripheries in Eastern Europe. Yes, even different from Poland, the Baltic lands, but uh, German uh, uh, elite that was much loyal to St. To, to Petersburg. So, Ukraine was kind of a mixture of different things, uh, almost a paradox, yes, showcasing these two sides. Yes, empire destroying and also empire building. And again, that's one of the uh, major things that I try to uh, show in my book.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Thank you and yes definitely I'm also um, interested in hearing your thoughts about uh, how uh, different for instance um, Ukrainians were uh, under the Russian Empire compared to those under the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, in terms of how they perceived themselves or in terms of how they saw their future Uh, but uh, first of all I would like to uh, shift our conversation a little bit to the terminology and uh, particularly uh, in terms terms of this conversation about the Russian Empire. So um, terminology is one of the contentious topics uh, to some extent. Uh, Do we say for instance Ukraine or Malorussia or do we stick with the unfortunate translation of Malorussia that seems to make it almost impossible to envision Ukraine as a cultural and political entity that at some certain periods was superior to Russia and of course in this case I'm referring to Little um, Russia. Uh, What was your approach to the terminology and what criticism were you anticipating when making your choice um, and uh, decision regarding certain terms because you use also Little Russia and uh, Ukraine and uh, Maloruxia?
1: That's another great question and it's also a question of practical use of the terms because we all, uh, as storied scholars, Uh, Particularly in the humanities, we need to use our terms carefully and uh, with some explanation why we do this. And I know that a lot of historians of this period, of Russia and Ukraine, they tend to shy away from using uh, present-day terms. So a number of my colleagues, for example, particularly in the West, uh, those who write in English, not not in Ukrainian and they again they cautious uh, about using the term Ukraine and Ukrainians uh, when it comes to uh, the earlier periods when those terms were not widely used now in contrast to uh, my colleagues uh, I don't shy away from using the term Ukraine and Ukrainians uh, when I speak about the territory of present-day Ukraine and about the people that is now known as Ukrainians, uh, particularly when I speak uh, in general terms. Yes, but I do uh, explain, I believe, uh, why I use the term Ukraine and Ukrainians with respect to essentially uh, present day territory of Ukraine and the majority population that historically lived on that territory. Now, that's to mean that I. Uh, think that other terms are somewhat controversial and should not be used. Little Russia, as you mentioned, or uh, Malarossia, and the other terms, no, I think that we should use them all, depending on the context. Mm-hmm. And I'll just give you just an example when I would use uh, other terms than Ukraine. Mm-hmm. As because Ukraine, I agree, that is often uh, anachronistic term. Yes, it, it's a term that's um, began to be used widely only in the late 90s, and actually even later, in the early 20th century. So, But that doesn't mean that we cannot use it backwards, yeah, because uh, if you look at other uh, cases, even the case of France or other European uh, established states and nations, historians don't use those terms backwards. Retro- <laughs> retroactively or anachronistically, simply uh not to complicate the narrative but when i speak about um, for example identity issues as of mm-hmm. population of ukraine uh those especially known as ethnic ukrainians but also others i would use uh terms that were uh widely used and applied to this territory and people in the 19th century uh, and hence i use the concept of the little russia uh, when it was applied to territory of Ukraine in the 19th century, particularly parts of Ukraine. I also uh, use the term South Russia, which was a widely uh, popular uh, designation of Ukraine at the time. And lots of Ukrainian intellectuals uh, would call themselves South Russians and mm-hmm. was kind of official uh, label. Uh, uh, but uh, all this variety of, 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 of terms and be confusing and hence again um, to avoid over complication. Uh, I used the term Ukrainian Ukrainians uh, when I spoke about more general things, yes, uh, not about identity issues or regional uh, differences and the evolution of Ukrainian space, for example, which also deserves uh, attention. Yes, how Ukraine from being uh, a very regional uh, designation. Uh, became this kind of over encompassing, oh, 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 kind of inclusive term uh, by the end of the 20th century for Ukrainians, for locals. Yes, so that's a separate story and, and it's part of uh, my, my my narrative too. But again, as I, I will reiterate, I don't shy away from using the term Ukraine, and I think um, uh, it's. Has its own advantages. Yeah, it simply makes the narrative uh, kind of less uh, overcomplicated. Mm-hmm. Yes, and in it, 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 I don't see anything bad about it. But in all respects, I mean, in all cases, when I discuss particular issues with identities, with original differences, I uh, try to use terminology of the day. Mm-hmm. So that would be my uh, answer to the question of terminology. Uh, and I know that some of my colleagues probably will, will disagree, but I think we still can, can, can have some common ground.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that, um, Serhi. And uh, in your book, you also uh, offer um, very ample, um, I would say, um, data um, that... Actually, very vividly illustrate that even in the nineteenth century, all these terms were circulating succ- uh, uh, in the um, public discourse, in the literary discourse, in the cultural discourse, historical as well uh, to some extent. Uh, and you also mention uh, uh, such writers as Hohol um, and uh, Taras Shevchenko, and both of them, including Hohol, <laughs> um, were also using Ukraine and Belarusian.
1: Sometimes they did actually interchangeably. And it's an interesting case with Rachevchenko, who, for example, in when he wrote in Russian, in letters to his Russian correspondents, he would always, most often would use a term like South Russia, usually uh, Russia or uh, Little Russia, but in his Ukrainian correspondence, and he would only use Ukraine. So for him, these terms were a couple of equal size. Yes, but depending on the context uh, but on Adri say mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he used this different terms interchangeably, but he knew the context when each of those terms had to be used. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't feel it, yes, as as you know, as 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 historians, but also as people who live in the twenty-first century. But people in the nineteenth century they were conscious mm-hmm. of those terms and of their usage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's not always easy to for us to see how they navigated the, the, the that complexity. But at least we know that the term Ukraine uh increasingly uh, was used by uh people who were primarily loyal to Ukraine, yes, mm-hmm. like Shevchenko and his uh his, his friends, yeah, were as opposed to the terms like Little Russia and Southern Russia, which were continuously uh used by uh kind of People who were more loyal to to Russia, to the old Russian nation, uh, and Ukrainians simply tend to use it less and less. Those who are conscious of, uh, of, of, of their of the own Ukrainianness. Yeah, so that's kind of a possible answer.
0: Yeah, yeah, and uh, as, I, as I mentioned, um, uh, it's quite helpful uh, for the Anglophone audiences, for instance, to uh, start tracing this circulation of those multiple terms uh, in order not to shy away, for instance, from uh, uh, this term Ukraine um, in this uh, usage in the nineteenth century. So, and uh, as your book clearly emphasizes, Ukraine was already a distinct uh, uh, national cultural and even political entity by the middle of the 19th century, and Ukraine's distinctiveness from Russia was hard to question even in the 18th century. Uh, Moreover, Ukrainians were providing Russia with intellectual resources on the way to the building of the Russian Empire. How did the Ukrainians see themselves in the 18th century and what changes, inflections, transformations took place in the 19th century?
1: I will answer this question as a historian of the 19th century, not the 18th century, because historians of the 18th century might disagree with me, simply because they know more than me. But uh, I think the basic distinction uh, between uh, the 18th and 19th centuries, so and I will try to kind of summarize these this, this differences. First of all, we don't really know what the masses of population thought of themselves, yes, before the opinion polls, before. The you know widespread literacy uh, before the censuses which all happened much later, either in the late 19th century or even or in the 20th century. So what we know about the 18th century, we know mostly about the elites, that the educated class of Ukrainians, uh, most often called officers and clergy, and we kind of know what's the thoughts because uh, they wrote. Uh, various works, uh, history, memoirs, correspondence, and so on and so on. So, kind of the, the basic kind of pattern of thinking uh, about uh, nation uh, in the 18th and 19th century um, was the following. For uh, uh, the Kozak officers and their descendants uh, who, who, who became Russian imperial nobles and aristocrats in the late 18th century, uh, nation was still. An early morning phenomenon. Yes, it mm-hmm. mostly was embodied uh, by the own social group, which was uh, intermarried, interrelated, uh, and you can think about it as the uh, about the nation they they adhered to as essentially family affair. Yeah, because they were indeed inter- Dozens of interrelated families were primarily coming from uh one region and that was settlement ukraine or the hetmanate uh in the 19th century encompassing uh, two provinces of nuclear russia Chernihiv and poltava so that's where the basis that's where that Cossack nation survived in the 18th century but what happened in the 19th century? Well uh the changes generational changes it's 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 almost natural thing to say but what happened to their particular vision of the old nation, Little Russia or Ukraine? Well, that's also a question of the so-called Little Russian solution. Uh, and that's the term that historian on Andreevsky used with respect to uh, uh, this 18th century generation. So apparently, if you follow the logic uh, of Professor Andreevsky, and I use this in my book, uh, what happened is that uh, That's the Russian solution when you have uh, two loyalties, one to Little Russia, another to Russia, uh, became uh, incompatible. And so, roughly after 1850, um, to be Little Russian and to be Russian at the same time uh, in equal measures was becoming basically impossible. And 1850, it, it's an approximate timeline, yes, when you have basically clear. Uh, change of generations. Um, when, for example, the new generation that uh, came to dominate this Ukrainian uh, political culture, Tarashevchenko, uh, Shevchenko, Mykola and others, uh, they saw themselves differently. Yes, they saw themselves not as a kind of early modern nation of nobles, but as a as as a kind of uh, romantic populist for whom actual ability was not even part of their own imagined community. So that was uh, a a big shift, even in terms of social component. Yes. And uh, ideologically they were also different. We will discuss a bit later uh, in subsequent questions uh, how different they were ideologically. But uh, what I want to say now is that Uh, Again, uh, this little Russian solution failed with the rise of Russian nationalism in the late 19th century, uh, and simply the space for little Russians who were patriotic little Russians, but also Russians, became smaller and smaller, Mm -hmm. to the point that by the the late 19th century, uh, you can't really be uh, more modern... Patriotic uh, little Russian, uh, publicly professing your own identity. Yeah, so that's that's became impossible, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's 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 why uh, the tradition of this late 18th century little Russian patriotism simply collapsed uh, in the 19th century under influence of different factors. One of them being the rise of Russian nationalism, but also the rise of populist Ukrainian nationalism, uh, which uh, simply was less likely to find a compromise with this Russian, all-Russian patriotism, uh, with the idea of the all-Russian nation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, And uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation uh, Your book also touches upon the um, Austrian-Hungarian uh, Empire uh, And although the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire Exercised at times similar impacts But on a larger scale they shaped cultural production Political attitudes in different uh, ways So considering these differences How did the Ukrainians uh, living in two different empires empires calibrate, uh, calibrated and united, but maybe it can also be an opportunity to talk a little bit about those influences on the Ukrainian um, identity under the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire compared to what you just discussed in terms of the Russian Empire.
1: It's another big question, and I want to emphasize that I'm not a historian of Ukraine in within the Austro-Hungarian Empire,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but I will again provide my answer. As a historian of Ukraine, primarily uh, within the Russian Empire. And my answer would be pretty straightforward is that uh, the Ukrainian story in the long 19th century uh, was uh, not simply a national story, it was transnational and international in the sense that it uh, was occurring uh, on both sides of the Austro Russian border, and that the border was, was crucial. The development of Ukrainian national identity and in, in Ukrainian national movement, um, and how that border could be could be uh, traversed, how could it be, how could ideas and people uh, kind of circulate uh, uh, beyond the border? It's a, it's a, it's a question in itself. But uh, the links between Ukrainians living in the Russian Empire and those who lived in the Austrian Empire intensified really since the 1830s and 40s, when the, the new generation of, uh, of Ukrainians, but also Russians from the Russian Empire, started traveling uh, to, to Austria. That's where they discovered uh, people who were very similar to Ukrainians in, in, in Russia. These were intellect, inter, few intellectuals that started traveling, in 1840s and 40s. But uh, uh, that border uh, uh, became crucial again later in the century. Yes, when uh, when 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 the ideas and people uh, began to circulate on, on a wider scale. But without that kind of connection, uh, we can think that the Ukrainian nation, as we you know it you know today. Would probably would not have happened, as yes, because Vienna provided kind of safe space. Eventually, yes, but for the development mm-hmm. of the Ukrainian uh, idea, but also Ukrainian political discourse. Yes, because uh, the Austrian Empire allowed for uh, allowed permitted much more space central. Yes, uh, for negotiations of. Uh, identities then that Russia, for various reasons, as yes, Austria would be a constitutional state, particularly in the late 19th century, Russia was not, and for many other reasons, uh, the, the Austrian Ukraine, particularly Galicia, yes, became the so-called uh, Ukrainian, Ukrainian pigment, Yes, that is the major hub as for the Ukrainian national identity in, in the long in the, in the, in the 19th century, particularly in the late 19th century. But what is interesting, uh, and many people in the West, uh, historians, but mostly general public, they thought, or they they still think, that Ukrainian nationalism uh, was centrally born in in the West, Galicia, uh, well, probably extrapolating the events from the 20th century, Mm -hmm. yes, all the way back to the 19th. But we know that the Ukrainian national idea... Essentially, was born in Eastern Ukraine, uh, most particularly in Kharkiv, still in the early 19th century, and that's where it's, it began to spread around. Obviously, Kiev became an important place uh, late in the century, but all these ideas, which were essentially born uh, in eastern and central Ukraine, then simply were implanted to uh, uh, to Galicia, to Austrian Ukraine, and there they blossomed, but. They were born in the east <laughs> yes <laughs> then they came to the west where they were simply more space uh because again austria was a constitutional state uh which uh allowed for various kind of national debates and discussions uh and that's was crucial. Cool but again but the initial impetus came from the east uh still from the 80s and 40s and then you have new generate romantic generations of local Galicians, as most famously uh, uh, the Russianian Triad, or Ruska Tritsa, uh, who first really adapted intellectual uh, influences from Ukrainian writers uh, that, who lived and the Russian Empire, including, including uh, Harky Romantics and later Shevchenko who became really an important person for Galicians. And that was done consciously, yes. So this influence from eastern and central Ukraine uh, in Galicia led to the blossoming of its own uh, Ukrainian identity, yes. But people had to make a conscious decision, yes, that they wanted to be part of the same imagined community. Yes, Uh, it was not preordained that... Ukrainian identity would become rooted in in Western Ukraine, in, in English. It had to be done consciously by very specific people. Yes, who made a choice. Yes, to to uh, to live, at least first of all, to imagine uh, this common mm-hmm. uh, community to which they wanted to belong, and then other things uh, were secondary. Even even language, because language uh, had to be basically. Uh, be created as a as a, as a common common uh, vehicle, common instrument. Yes, uh, and there were debates. Yes, to what extent you know West Ukrainians, Galicians in particular, had to preserve its own distinctiveness in in, in linguistically in many other respects. But the decision was first of all and kind actually of to to embrace this common space. Yes, mm-hmm. and and then all other things kind of came into place a bit later. Uh, but the importance of the Austro-Russian border uh was crucial. Yes, and I, again I, I would reiterate uh I think if imagine that uh western Ukraine or Austrian Ukraine Austrian ruled Ukraine never existed, then we might have had totally different Ukraine today. If, if 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 any great at all. Yes, I think I would I would I would describe uh, great difference uh, great importance mm-hmm. so this imperial divide which uh, not only as a divide as a border but also as a context of yes as a, uh, a as, as, as a space uh, for interaction yes mm-hmm. exchanges and that's what uh, was crucial in in the long 19th century for the idea of Ukraine and for eventually for ukraine as a as a nation yes mm-hmm. spreading two borders cool.
0: yeah i i truly appreciate how your uh, book uh really shows how the um, um development of Ukrainian of, of Ukrainian nation um, was taking place while interacting with these two empires and of course in the first place that as you emphasize this difference between the ukrainians and the um Russians uh while there are a lot of um issues a lot of um uh intersections right in which the ukrainians and the Russians would differ um you um you also um put a lot of emphasis on the memory of the um Cossack hetmanate and uh the experience of serfdom uh in Ukraine and, well we will use this term right? in Ukraine and in Russia per se um so uh, I guess what I would like uh, to do is to combine these two um experiences um, if, if you will, um, that really contributed to this profound difference between the Ukrainians and the Russians. So would you would you just guide us very, very briefly uh, in terms of how these two uh, instances contributed to this profound uh, difference between the Ukrainians and Russians, not only in terms of, of course, languages you pointed out, because a lot of Ukrainians would speak Russian um, back then, or some sort of um, uh, variant, but but in terms of uh, political attitudes uh, that would become essential uh, in the 20th century?
1: Uh, I will start with the discussion of the Admonite and Cossacks in general as essentially probably the most important legacy uh, in Ukrainian modern history. Uh, And here we, we can clearly compare Securing Russian cases, who, because in Russian case, uh, well we know that there were all Cossacks in Russia, they still exist, Cossack communities, but the historical role of Cossacks in in Russia was different from the role Cossacks, Cossacks played in Ukraine, in Ukrainian history, yes, and and then the legacy, yes, of an imagery uh, and symbolism uh, was very different. Because for Ukrainians uh, in the nineteenth century, the Cossacks became the prime symbol of the identity. Yeah, that's how uh, Ukrainians uh, tended to identify themselves with. Yeah, kind of as 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 a as a, as a, as a community uh, descended from Cossacks. Even though most Ukrainians in nineteenth century did not descend from Cossacks, they're mostly peasants. But what merit is this kind of it's it's imaginary links. So Cossack done. Yeah, and, and 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 what it meant, it meant that people um what people saw in Cossacks, even peasants who were most illiterate, for them Cossacks meant freedom, or at least the fight, struggle for freedom. Yes, kind of freedom in, uh, freedom in spirit. That was common uh common self-image for Ukrainians in the 19th century. Not only uh, among the intellectual uh, Elites, but also among the general populace, because we know the, even from uh, various peasant riots, people wanted to become Cossacks, they wanted to recreate uh, the Cossacks' regiments or the Cossacks' uh, the Cossack, uh, uh, lifestyle, because for them that was a symbol of freedom. And that's what almost kind of by default when, when Ukrainians thought of themselves in the next century was. Well, we are the descendants of Cossacks and that's what we want to be. Yes, not is simply we not me not simply peasants of Serfs. Yes, we were of our we are descendants of Freedom loving Post. And that became uh, probably the most kind of defining uh part of the Ukrainian national myth in the century. And it's interesting that Sergei Kerchik, who uh, analyzed uh Ukrainian national myth in the 19th century, particularly uh, by looking at the Ukrainian files as the group of national Ukrainian intelligentsia in, at the time, he uh, he summed up it actually very very brilliantly, because uh, what he wrote is that that Ukrainian national myth had uh, two kind of paradigms. Yes, so first was the Cossack one that's linked Ukrainians with uh, with history with its luck, freedom-loving Cossacks, and another part was the peasant one, yes, connecting them to the democratic present. Uh, all these elements they referred to democracy, whatever people understood by it, uh, and, and and hence uh, uh, that vision was actually very much different from uh, the image of, of self-image of Russians, yes, for whom. Uh, it was very difficult to imagine themselves outside of the state, outside of, of, of the official church yes outside of those institutions uh, that's pretty much convict oppression yes And so even on the level of these myths, yes how history played out um, actually uh, has played out has played a great role in how Ukrainians and Russians saw themselves and each other yes. And even if that was all the national myths, uh, the myths influence how people behave, how they see the world and, and each other. And so, uh, in this sense, uh, we can see that uh, the Kodak history, yes, was imagined, perceived, and kind of pre-imagined by Ukrainians and Russians differently. Yes, and that's what we even see uh, even today. Yes, because... Uh, if, 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 if you remember, the Kosek uh, Renaissance since the early ni- 1990s, when people started kind of recreating uh, the Cossack imagery, first simply dressing up as Cossacks but then it became serious. And at the time of Euromaidan, 2013 to 2014, we remember uh, how actually people... Uh, behaved like Cossacks, yes, even the very concept of of yes, all those things uh, 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 became uh, basically intermingled with how people actually uh, saw themselves at present, yes, so that's what imagery uh, is crucial, even from our eyes when we uh, look at how uh, people in the army today, yes, even use the concept of property and of comrades in arms, which also refers back to, uh, to this imaginary Cossacks, uh, and, and we see how uh, important that imagery made today for Ukrainians, whereas Russians historically grapple with the old national identity. Yes, because again, um, uh, for Russians it's very hard to imagine themselves as yes, outside of traditional pillars of such as autocracy, Official Church and other institutions uh, that were created pretty much for oppression, and you can feel it even in, 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 in how people today in independent Russia uh, perceive politics, perceive uh, the neighbors, perceive the outside world. It's still a certain degree part of the nineteenth century, as mm-hmm. we can. Uh, actually see in front of our eyes to that mm-hmm. in people's attitudes and people's uh, ideas and how they suit the power of the government, it's pretty much remarkable how mm-hmm. that Central East is alive.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, that's probably um, a part of um, that explanation, uh, right, to some extent why this idea about Russians and Ukrainians, quote unquote, being one people, so viable in Russia. So, and you par- partially addressed this this kind of question as well. Um, but um, just to, to conclude our conversation, um, again, um, w- would you? offer your commentary on these reasons why uh, this idea is so viable, why there was no um, profound reconsideration of how the Russians, for instance, see themselves, why they cannot see themselves outside of Ukraine um, in in this case. And I know that it's not a part of your project, it's not part of your um, book, uh, but um, uh, I would appreciate your commentary or your opinion on, on, on this.
1: Oh, unfortunately, it's a pressing issue, and as long as Russians are not able to see themselves uh, in kind of secular national terms, mm-hmm. yes, in ethnic mm-hmm. terms, we're going to have problems with them. We mean Ukrainians and people who live in Ukraine. Uh, Russian Russians never acquiesced to the collapse of the so-called Russian nation, which was, in the PL concept, created roughly again the midf, middle 19th century uh, and became kind of some official vision of of, of Russianness in the empire which left almost no space for distinct Ukrainian identity. That's why that little little Russian solution failed. Yes, because simply in fewer, fewer space yes, was left for anything distinct, anything different from this official version of russianness uh, and paradoxically uh concept of russianness as almost again in a tradition of this old R- russian nation the term uh that's uh was widely used in the, in the, in the 19th century that's 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 the original russian board was almost uh, in, almost totally fully resurrected in in Putin's Russia uh, as the if the Soviet Union the Soviet experience did not exist because well we all know that the Soviets the, the Bolsheviks they they were forced to recognize the distinctiveness of various communities they they, they 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 had to acquiesce to the creation of the national republics including put in Ukraine uh, we know about the colonization in the 1920s and even even if yes we also know about repressions Stalinist terror ukrainian distinctiveness was never questioned it was recognized and suddenly uh after two, after year 2000 we have kind of a regression all, all the way back to the imperial kind of thinking and that's what's uh is terrifying actually is <laughs> how 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 people don't learn historical lessons? How they tend to kind of fall back to uh, almost primordial uh, behaviors and 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 mentality, and and, and that's what is striking. Yes, yeah. that, that that's what we have today is again as 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 a resurrection of thinking, and unfortunately, it's not only Putin's. Yes, there's something deeper there. Yes, something more primordial. Again, uh, we see today that Russians simply uh, cannot think of themselves as a national community outside of the state, outside of the institution, uh, outside of the the official church. Whether they go to the the church or not, they still kind of cling to the same uh, institutions that's well they were, they were they were not primordial but they clearly come from previous centuries yes and and that's unfortunate and i think uh that is the problem again we're facing with the same dilemma that's ukraine is incompatible with russia as long as russia remains autocratic and imperial period there is there is there's is nothing that can solve this this dilemma uh as long as russia doesn't change itself mm-hmm. and whether it happens uh in, in the near future well we will see but ukraine pays their heavy price uh, because russians cannot solve their own national issues yes mm-hmm. they can sort out who they are mm-hmm. yes they can acquiesce to the to the collapse of of this old russian nation and, 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 and this is again this legacy of 19th century absolutely mm-hmm. and obviously the main paradox was that some historians i mean historians know that the idea about this tricky tree or what would be the better term to unite nation russians ukrainians and belarus yellow white russians english russians and white russians was the actual creation created by ukrainian clergy in the 17th century so that's that's again one of the kind of unforeseen consequences mm-hmm. of history and that's the paradox mm-hmm. but now ukraine has to again has to become a grave digger of the empire
0: mm-hmm.
1: these yeah. russians don't want to do the historical work
0: Well, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Serhii. Thank you so much for this conversation and thank you so much for your book that um, offers ample material for uh, learning how Ukraine developed as a state and as a nation. Uh, Moreover, it also uh, um, offers a lot of uh, information um, that actually invites and encourages to uh, focus on differences and on some distinctiveness rather than um, um, simplification. So congratulations again on the on the book. And uh, thank you so much for our conversation today.
1: Thank you so much, Talia, for this wonderful conversation and, and, and very thought-broken questions. Thank you so much.
0: Today I spoke with Sergei Bilenki about his new book, Laboratory of Modernity, Ukraine Between Empire and Nation, 1772-1914, published in 2023 by McGill-Quinn's University Press in collaboration with the Canadian Institute for Ukrainian Studies. Thank you for listening to New Books in Ukrainian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. (music)